Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the February 7, 27 edition of Ask a Leader. More movement amidst the U.S. Senate confirmation hearings as we begin today's show. Keep an eye on that, everyone. My first guest will be labor activist and journalist and writer Steve Early to talk about his recently published book, Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City, published by Beacon Press. He'll offer promising news about the force of grassroots efforts from the Richmond Progressive Alliance vis-a-vis the Chevron Corporation juggernaut. Then we'll be one of the first to present on the airwaves the founding dean of UCI's Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing and professor of nursing science, Dr. Eddie Nemethy. She will link current initiatives with the degrees offered at the school to prepare these vaunted professionals in the trenches and delivering better health care for all. Be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is author Steve Early, who has worked as a journalist, lawyer, labor organizer, or union representative for the past 45 years. His writing has appeared in The Nation, Boston Globe, New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, Christian Science Monitor, and USA Today, among others. He is the author of three other books, including Save Our Unions, Dispatches from a Movement in Distress, and he lives in Richmond, California. And thanks to uh, the imprimatur from Bill Moyers, I was made aware of his latest book and the subject of today's program, Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City, which traces the city's history from its 1900s origins to the present triumph of progressive policies relevant and reproducible, which have revitalized the city of Richmond. The book is published by Beacon Press and opens with a foreword by Senator Bernie Sanders. Steve Early completed his Bachelor's of Arts at Middlebury College and his law degree at Catholic University. As he continues his national book tour, he comes to us today. I believe it's from Oakland, is it not, Steve Early? Uh, right here at home in Richmond. It, right. He comes to us today from Richmond. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Steve Early. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, congratulations on completing this book, a success story chock full of messages that certainly have relevance at this moment. The helicopter view of Richmond's Renaissance would miss the details that you so thoroughly and endearingly, I might add, lay out in this book. First, let's have you offer a, a brief labor, racial, socioeconomic background of Richmond, California, a one-company town situated in the northeastern part of San Francisco Bay region, where at any time the locals gird for the next alarm for residents to remain indoors to avoid exposure to toxic plumes discharged from the refineries, a ritual that you learned about right after you moved in. I did. I did. Well, Richmond is a great place. It's just up the uh, San Francisco Bay from the better-known cities of Oakland and Berkeley. Uh, the city is incredibly diverse, 80% non-white, about uh, 40% Latino at this point, 30% African-American, 10% Asian. It's still a largely blue-collar town. Uh, about 20% of the population uh, lives at or below the poverty level, so a lot of people are struggling to survive economically in Richmond. Uh, the politics of the town, as you indicated, have long been dominated by its largest employer, uh, known today as Chevron, but for most of the 20th century, operated under the name Standard Oil. Right. So the book is really uh, about the history of community and labor efforts to curb the power and influence and the environmental uh, impact of, uh, of big oil in a, uh, a company town long dominated by, uh, by Chevron and before it, Standard Oil. And you lay out a quite a detailed history as well of the kind of racial divide. There, was, well, there were 
blacks moving in and the, the labor that was required for various uh, war mobilization around the Bay Area and uh, well, also, I mean, first the refinery and then the, the World War II yeah. buildup as well and how the, there was white flight and, the, and behind was left not only the city of Richmond as a, as a minority town, but then there's the unincorporated part of North Richmond that was a sort of a, it's still an abscess as far as it's not, uh, it's it's got its, uh, it's the, it has to deal with its deprivation as an unincorporated area. It does not have any municipal kinds of representation, direct leadership. Yeah, the, the demographics of uh, Richmond changed greatly uh, in the middle of the, the 20th century due to the Kaiser shipyard. Uh, Henry J. Kaiser originally was not known for running a health care network, he uh, was a dam builder and a shipbuilder, got a big government contract to build merchant marine vessels in Richmond, and a quickly assembled workforce of over 100,000 really transformed the city. Uh, many of these shipyard workers were recruited from the Jim Crow South, from Alabama, from Texas and Arkansas and Mississippi. Uh, they were African-Americans uh, trying to get away from uh, segregation and the lack of job opportunities in the South, and they were able, along with women, breaking into non-traditional jobs for the first time to get work in the Kaiser shipyard. And when the war ended, Second World War, there was an effort to send them home, to push them out, and there were some very interesting post-war struggles that I recount in the book for uh, housing, for uh, desegregation of uh, the city workforce, the police and the fire department, and uh, the emergence of African-American political empowerment in Richmond in the second half of the 20th century was a direct result of workplace struggles among black workers in the Kaiser shipyard during the Second World War. And I guess, you know, what we could, Steve Early, we could talk about empowerment with a big E and a small E. Chevron certainly had a way of playing the race card, which complicated progressive policies coming up through the the grassroots so that that it really is a it's a critical piece to that so i i wondered if you could lay out for us some of the players some of the there's the richmond progressive alliance affiliates the standard bearers in the municipal politics uh, as a separate group the the police chief the labor leaders and affiliates it was it's it's just it's a and even i noticed that uh, betty uh, Reed Soskin, she is the famous. Uh, I don't want to over. I don't want to over describe her, but <laughs> but she uh, she got a lot of notoriety later. Uh, she received a presidential award, an honor in the Obama administration, and then that award was uh, was stolen from her at the. I, was it at the at her home, not at yes, the, the park? Yes. Well, um, I think what's interesting about the Richmond story is that municipal reform efforts in the past, particularly in the 60s and 70s, tended to be focused in university towns, uh, like yours, Irvine. Uh, there were progressives who went out of the movements of the 60s and into local politics in places like Santa Monica, Santa Cruz, Berkeley, of course, Madison, Wisconsin, Burlington, Vermont, where Bernie Sanders uh, served four terms as mayor in the 1980s. And the progression of uh, local activists into electoral politics in a place like Richmond was, was much more challenging. There's no university here. There's no natural constituency for what you'd call left politics. And the political establishment was extremely powerful, and it consisted of Chevron, the Chamber of Commerce, the Manufacturers Association, many powerful development interests, building trades unions aligned with the developers and conservative police and firefighter unions. And so for many decades uh, in the late 20th century, this coalition controlled City Hall, picked the mayor, dominated politics on the city council, and, and really made most of the, the political and economic decisions that affected the lives of the 110,000 people in the city. About 10 years ago, that coalition was challenged by a progressive coalition, the Richmond Progressive Alliance, and it was a diverse grouping of environmental activists, people who have been active in the California Green Party, uh, some uh, trade unionists, people who had been fighting for housing affordability and police accountability and dealing with the issues of discrimination against undocumented workers and, and mistreatment of the homeless. And people have been involved in a lot of different single issues. 
And uh, they came together and decided that not only did they need to organize uh, in the community around these issues, they needed some people on the inside of city government. They needed some people in city hall who could uh, work with them to make the city safer and cleaner and greener and more equitable for everybody that lives in it. And the pers- the constant in all of this is a very kind of, I would say, it's a special labor history that's it was more than garnering better compensation package. It was more about public health. And according to your book, uh, it was a, it's a constant appeal to Chevron to install and maintain proper safeguards at the refiners. It was all about public health more than about wage compensation. Yes, well, uh, the uh, Richmond really was a pioneering uh, location for what we call today environmental justice organizing, the uh, Black and Latino community, uh, poor and, and working class people lived downwind of the refinery, started organizing in the 1980s under the banner of a group called the West County Toxics Coalition. And um, this activist group uh, started to build community and legal pressure on Chevron to clean up its act, to reduce refinery admissions, uh, to cut back on its flaring, uh, to uh, do maintenance work more safely. And the challenge for those uh, early environmentalists uh, was to to find a basis for working with refinery workers who have been told for many decades that environmentalists are the enemy and that any kind of blue-green alliance is really going to backfire on them and uh, lead to uh, shutting down of of the refinery and the loss of their jobs. So over the years, uh, it's been a challenge for the oil workers' union uh, in the Chevron Richmond Refinery and others to find a continuing basis for working together with members of the community. The workers inside want a safer workplace. The people outside uh, want a healthier community. And so there's a, there's a lot of basis for working together uh, and challenging the company. But um, it, it, it takes a lot of coalition building, a lot of patience, a lot of persistence. And in recent years, we've seen that alliance paying off, fortunately, here in Richmond. Indeed. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Steve Early, author and labor activist, whose new book, Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City, lays out a compelling story about progressive successfully coalescing in their city council in Richmond, California, against Chevron Corporation. And the book is uh, published by Beacon Press. So that coalition there we they're up against as we're talking about chevron corporation which was earning on an annual basis you know in the billions but they managed to sort of pay out you know a couple million to sort of line the that some sort of a, a local education foundation or some local institutions but it was endearing engendering goodwill but they were making so much money while uh, in fact endangering them so let's let's talk about those kinds of you know the earnings they're making off of what they were really contributing to the community well, one of the, the big struggles that progressives in Richmond have, have raised and has broader implications in other refinery yes. towns and and many other cities in the state has been the issue of, of Chevron not paying its uh, fair share of taxes. Um, as elsewhere in the state, property taxes here are assessed at the at the county level. Right. Uh, the city uh, has a, an annual budget crunch and uh, faces difficulty maintaining much-needed public services, uh, police and firefighters, uh, the libraries, youth programs. And one of the limitations on its ability to raise revenue, of course, is the continuing legacy of uh, Proposition 13 that right. was passed in, in 1978 that was supposed to provide uh, relief for homeowners. And unfortunately, the new system of property valuation that was introduced at the time really benefits large commercial property owners. So today, statewide corporations' share of the property taxes in California is less than 30%. Homeowners are paying more than 70%. 
And companies like Chevron, because of Proposition 13, which needs to be repealed, save, in Chevron's case, about a quarter of a billion dollars a year. I mean, we would get 30 more million dollars a year in revenue locally from Chevron if the pre-1978 property tax assessment methods were used. So Richmond needs to be part and is part of broader coalitions for tax reform at the at the state level. Um, and the company, rather than paying its fair share of taxes, as you mentioned, uh, likes to position itself as a big philanthropist and does give millions of dollars to worthy local nonprofits and youth programs and education programs. But it's a it's strategic philanthropy. It's it's designed to buy to win hearts and minds and buy political support. And uh, it is really no proper substitute for paying your fair share of taxes and then democratically elected municipal leaders deciding how best to, to allocate that revenue. And as you point out also, there was the utility taxes. There was a cap put on how much the Chevron Corporation was obligated to pay, and it required citizens or grassroots efforts to disclose what act- where was that cap and was it the fair share of the the, toward the utility there. Well, because of the the fact that the city doesn't assess property taxes itself, and is and the county does, and the county is bound by the Proposition 13 right. formula, reformers in Richmond to try to raise revenue uh, have at various times imposed a utility tax, a manufacturer's tax, and any kind of tax Chevron fights. It, it fights uh, when the co- county uh, property tax assessor tries to present them a, with a bill. They, they litigate that. I mean, this is a company that will spend years appealing uh, callow fines for a fire, will uh, drag out environmental lawsuits for decades, and will contest any attempt to get them to pay uh, their fair share of, of taxes in, in any form. So it's almost a given that if you try to um, challenge Chevron on this front, you're in for a protracted uh, legal fight. And that's what's really remarkable about the Richmond Progressive Alliance in on the, their their city council is trying to keep that budget intact, inviable, how, how to remain solvent with that kind of constant drain and the need to cut, the need to raise other revenue from a, a, a city whose demographic averages under $50,000 a year of income per household. It's even under 40000 per year. Yeah, and that's why... We've had controversies in the past about attempts to, to raise taxes uh, for valid public policy reasons. For example, there was a big local controversy in 2012 about Richmond's attempt, one of the first in the nation, to impose a penny per ounce tax on, on sugary drinks, on soda. That's uh, become more commonplace in recent years. as a soda tax that's been adopted in, in Oakland and Berkeley, San Francisco, even Philadelphia has one. But when Richmond tried to take the lead in 2012, the American Beverage Association swooped in, uh, spent more than $2 million um, killing the initiative and uh, helping to defeat progressive candidates that supported it. And it, and it became a very uh, device, racially divisive yes. uh, issue. Uh, and it was seen uh, as a kind of regressive tax on poor and working people and kind of an elitist attempt to uh, you know, tell them what to eat and drink. Notwithstanding that, you know, there's a terrible almost ep- epidemic of childhood obesity in Richmond among black and Latino kids. And long term, um, two or three million dollars more a year that would have been raised in that soda tax would have been well spent on health education and sports programs and parks and recreation. But I don't think that's a, uh, an issue that, that reformers in Richmond are going to be uh, returning to anytime soon, given the outcome of uh, that vote uh, right. four and, years ago. And and we know that that's been recognized also as a very uh, it has huge public health benefits with the, that taxing that. So it's uh, there was so much that Richmond could have gained there, but that the folks with the biggest checkbooks were were prevailing. And I guess that the the Beverage Association could step in with the the kind of local infrastructure that the Chevron Corporation set up. So they were re- they were ready to mobilize to defeat the the, the soda tax. Well, I think what's um What's instructive about what we learned from that, and yes. people in other towns did learn something. I mean, the Berkeley campaign a couple of years later, which did result in a soda tax being adopted, um, had the benefit of, of greater funding, and um, they approached the issue differently. But 
this idea of powerful private interests uh, creating kind of astroturf front groups and targeting minority communities, this is a game plan that the Koch brothers are, are, are using right now. Yes. Um, there's a big article in the New York Times um, a couple of weeks ago about a new group that they've uh, funded called Fueling U.S. Forward, and it's taking a leaf from these anti-soda tax campaigns. And basically what they're trying to do in minority communities is convince low-income people, poor and working-class people, that any efforts to curb climate change are going to result in higher fuel prices and represent a regressive tax on those least able to pay it. And they're uh, spreading this message, uh, you know, at halftime at Koch Brothers-sponsored gospel concerts and meetings and, and all kinds of gatherings. So they realize that that, that to defend their fossil fuel empire, they need a broader base, and they're going to try to build that base through um, misrepresentation and, and mobilization of, of perhaps unlikely allies. As well, besides their American Legislative Exchange Council, the, the ALEC, they're now moving also the Koch brothers to the, the city and county mechanism Correct. so that they can also offset some perhaps the progress made by the progressives at, at the local level. So that's a, it's a very strategic and persistent kind of a couple of models that the Koch brothers are implementing, and we all ought to, the more we know about those, the, the more successful we are in, in making uh, the grassroots case for, and, and, and prevailing. I'm just, I marvel when I read your book about the kinds of ways, I'm, at any point along this movement, this green-bluing of, of the city politics in Richmond, there, there could have been a time where an, a candidate was undone, but they had an uncanny way with their community engagement of turning around that somebody's, somebody's past was going to be dredged up and they were able to fight that off, that, well, that's, that was the past that happened, or somebody was going to be gay-baited, or the, the chief of police could have been a different chief police, but somehow Richmond found this community policing model uh, adopter you know if the all these series of of astute and fortunate and persistent efforts made this sort of brick by brick coalition come together for the city yeah and i think uh, this has been accomplished in a municipal government framework not really structured historically to enable elected officials to run the show we have what's called a, a weak mayor here the Elected mayor is really only a part-time position. The city manager, professional uh, city manager, administers the day-to-day -day work of city government. As you noted, department heads like the police chief are, are very important. We have a part-time city council of seven. So progressives, when they have uh, one city council seats, or in the case of our former mayor, now city councilwoman, Gail McLaughlin, who for eight years made Richmond the largest city in the country with a green mayor, when they have one office, they're basically uh, expanding the job definition and description. They're using it as a bully pulpit to promote progressive initiatives, to rally the constituencies that helped elect them, and to help make those grassroots movement in the city stronger. And that's a very different role than traditional politicians exactly. play at the municipal, county, or state, or national level, with a few exceptions like like Bernie Sanders. Right. And the 2014, I'm going to, I'll ask you in the back of your mind, think about uh, what is the latest, but I, I do have the latest results of who was, who was successful in the 2016 election. But in the 2014, the Chevron Corporation outspent the Progressive Alliance 30 to 1. What was, a, what, how much cash was rolling around in 2016 when you, uh, when you got the majority? It, it was, the, the total amount of, of, of big oil, or big soda spending, and, and last fall uh, real estate industry spending over the last three election cycles is seven to eight million dollars. And that may not sound a lot, but we're talking about spending in an active electorate of, of thirty to forty thousand people. So the, the per voter expenditures Hi. by these corporate interests are really huge. And in 2014, uh, produced a kind of backlash against Chevron. I mean, we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to elect some business-friendly candidates and, uh, through negative advertising, uh, destroy people who uh, had, in some cases, been doing a good job for the people of the city for a number of years. And 
and were known and respected for that, even if you know, people disagreed with them. So uh, sometimes that kind of uh, carpet bombing, that kind of uh, political air war, uh, does not serve corporate interests well. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't have a grassroots organization, if you don't have a strong electoral campaign capacity, if you don't have a program of local matching funds, which Richmond has, which enables people who run for office and can collect uh, small donations to get some additional money from the city as part of an election reform mechanism that I think more cities should have, right. you're, at a great, you're at a great disadvantage uh, taking on big money in politics at, at the local level. And, that, and that's where this local engagement, civic engagement, had such huge political capital to offset the financial capital used against them. Well, what became of the University of California's eyeing the real estate for the R&D park there in Richmond? That, tell us about this, the community benefits agreement and how, you were, how Richmond was trying to leverage what it could from the August UC system that was eyeing the real estate near town. Well, uh, Richmond, like uh, any city, uh, needs more jobs and uh, greener jobs, and there was a great hope here that the University of California, uh, which was planning to expand its Berkeley campus uh, on prop waterfront property that it owns in Richmond, would be a source of such jobs. Um, for a year or two, the then-Chancellor, uh, Mr. Dirks, uh, Berkeley was pushing the idea of creating a, a global campus in Richmond that would draw students from around the world and also be a center for technology and innovation and, and research. Uh, unfortunately, he was not able to secure the private funding that would be required to uh, uh, make this project a reality. While it was on the drawing boards, however, a very proactive uh, uh, community labor coalition put together set of proposals for what they called a community benefits agreement to ensure that if this expansion of the university did take place here, uh, the benefits uh, would be shared, that the With work uh, would be done on a unionized basis, there wouldn't be contracting out of the building services and cafeteria work, that there'd be uh, protections against displacement of low-income neighbors, um, and uh, that perhaps local students would even have access to some of the new educational opportunities created on that expansion of the, of the campus. So the project's on hold now, but at some point, UC Berkeley, when its funding situation permits, I think we'll be expanding in this direction. They'll be back, yes. And, um, you know, we have to be prepared because if, um, you know, if you don't get a seat at the table as uh, labor, as community, uh, you're going to be left out, and the de private developers and the big institutions like the, the UC system will be making decisions for you, and they won't, won't always be in the best interests of, uh, of local people. Well, there is the, the recent development of the, the white-collar workers being contracted out in the UC system. That, you know. Well, the, one of the main uh, points of the campaign was uh, to try to head that off because okay. the uh, AFSCME union that represents uh, building and grounds workers, cafeteria workers at UC Berkeley has about 200 members who live in Richmond, can't afford to live in Berkeley, but no. they commute to work there. And they were very much concerned that this expansion of the campus in Richmond, that kind of work would all be done by private contractors, not paying decent wages and, and not providing uh, health care or pension benefits. So this was an important labor standards fight. And uh, it suspended at the moment, but I'm sure is going to resume at some point, given the university's continuing efforts to contract out in ways that lowers labor standards and uh, leaves longtime employees in the lurch. Well, I haven't given any lip service uh, directly about the disastrous fire that occurred in 2012 as the Richmond Progressive Alliance is continuing to, to mobilize and coalesce in there. I'm, I, we won't have a chance to talk about what disaster unfolded, but what I promise you what I'll do, Steve, early is I there is a YouTube. It's an animation of a refinery fire. It was produced by the United States Chemical Safety Board, and it will, in a very neutral, objective fashion, give us a very clear indication of what kind of neighbors Chevron Corporation is with the persistent deferred maintenance and benign neglect of the refinery facilities that are in Richmond that continue to inflict a great deal of hazard on the populace and anybody coming through. 
The Chemical Safety Board recreation of the accident is not Chevron's favorite film, but it is very informative. <laughs> I would well, highly recommend. And, and Steve Ernie did not send me this, folks. I just did this in preparation. <laughs> so, but it's it it says so much about what's going on there. So, well, Steve Early. Well, I want to give you a chance. Do you have a moment to read, like, the very tail end of your epilogue to, to sort of yeah, sound? The, yeah, well, Why don't you read a little uh, bit? That would be our last word here. There's a great quote that, uh, you know, from, from Bernie Sanders, who came to Richmond two years ago, talking about the importance of people doing this work at the, the local level. He, uh, he told us, a big crowd in 2014, right before election that year, that uh, why he loved uh, municipal government. And he said, uh, because at the end of the day, Establishing community, bringing people together, creating a sense of place where people feel good about each other. That's the best we can do, and that's what you can do at the local level. And he inspired many people here to continue the work, and he's, he's doing that in, in communities around the country where many of his supporters are now thinking of running for city council or mayor, state legislature, school board, or county supervisor jobs. And uh, it's a great legacy of the Sanders presidential campaign, encouraging many new young progressives to go local in electoral politics. Go local. Okay. Well, you're on your book tour. You're, the closest you're going to be is at on February 19th at Skylight Books. That's in the Los Feliz neighborhood uh, of L.A. Actually, that one got postponed. Uh-oh. There is another event that people can get information about from my website, steveearly.org. It's going to be in L.A. next Sunday, February 12th, from 2 to 4. It's a kind of a gathering of former Sanders campaign activists in the L.A. area. And where will that be? Uh, at a, hosted by a, a Sanders campaign volunteer. And if you go to my website and the tour schedule, steveearly.org, you can um, get the Facebook I'll link. I'll put that on RSVP the summary. And uh, uh, hope people can come. Okay, very good. Well, the Steve Early, the book here is, the, is Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, Remaking of an American City documents that as i said this the how the largely non-white working class community spawned a progressives uh, successfully coalescing in their city council on richmond council in richmond uh, california against chevron published by beacon press people you can get your own copy either through your independent book store owner through beacon press or i, I guess at steveearly.org we can also get a copy uh you can order there's a link there too yeah Okay, well, I really appreciate your coming on the show to share with us what this fine municipal example for us to pick up and run with, and congratulations again. Thank you, Steve Early, for being on Ask a Leader today. Well, I'm going to be right back with you. We're going to talk with nursing school dean, Eddie Namathy. Don't go away. We'll be right back. That was the Blue Lab Beats, Blue Skies. Thank you for staying tuned. My next guest is Dr. Eddie Nemathy, founding dean of UCI's Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing and a professor of nursing science. She's with us following her appointment last month at UCI and the announcement of the formation of UCI School of Nursing from what was formerly a program. As professor and associate dean for research and international scholarship in the UCLA School of Nursing, she's led teams of multidisciplinary principal investigators on more than a dozen NIH-funded studies related to HIV-AIDS, tuberculosis, and hepatitis. The disciplines included nursing, medicine, public health, psychology, psychiatry, and musicology. Her domestic research has centered on the Skid Row area of Los Angeles among homeless and previously incarcerated populations. Internationally, Dr. Nimathy has worked with women living with AIDS in rural India, and that will be a golden model we can go back to about where the preventative aspect of health care in the nursing field is going here. So Dr. Nimathy's Work has yielded 200 publications in leading interdisciplinary journals, an American Academy of Nursing Fellow. She's earned her Bachelor's of Science in Nursing at Hunter College, her Master's Degree in Nursing, and her Adult Nurse Practitioner Certification. These 
State University of New York at Stony Brook and her doctorate in nursing at Case Western Reserve, University's Francis Payne Bolton School of Nursing. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Nimethy. Thank you very much, Claudia. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on your radio show, first of all, and of course to be the founding dean of the new Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing. All of us at the school, as you know, the California Board of Regents approved our school just within the last several weeks. And so our school is very excited and there's a lot of forward movement and activity that we are um, engaged in currently. I, I want to take a moment to, um, to thank um, the support from the William and Bill um, Family Foundation for their $40 million, which will be an enormous help in building our new structure, our new, our new school that we'll be um, taking on in the next several months or so. Absolutely. Well, as I lead in here with the interview, although not the oldest profession, Nursing is possibly the oldest respected provision, and it's about to become even more of a career here at UC Irvine, as you were saying, with this $40 million funding coming in. Uh, with this donation, the school can get a lot. We'll find out what that is. How does the institutional shift from the nursing program to the School of Nursing change the degrees, change the curriculum? Well... We have always had a very stellar program in nursing science. We've had a very strong uh, baccalaureate program and a master's program, which uh, produced nurse practitioners, as well as a PhD in nursing. Our vision now for this new school of nursing is to become a top-tier school. Our programs in the baccalaureate, as I said, um, will uh, continue to be stellar. We are going to be moving towards a new uh, doctor of nursing practice, which we hope will begin in 2018. Okay. And um, the goal for that program and for our um, PhD, of course, is to really build leaders of the future, to train leaders of the future, and to, um, and to create a very strong uh, partnership with our uh, UCI Medical Center in terms of, um, of leading the way in transforming health care. So with those, the leadership that will be a part of these certifications, these credentials that in the, the new Doctor of Nursing Practice and the PhD, will these be a way of providing opportunities for the nursing element, the nursing sector in healthcare delivery to be a greater part of the bottom up kinds of leadership than uh, in what is getting increasingly seeming to be a more top down kind of hierarchy in healthcare delivery, including at UCI. Well, you're absolutely right, Claudia, that in, in the sense that many, a large percentage of our nurses are functioning in acute care settings. And, and while that's very important, um, the, the movement that needs to happen right now to really tra transform healthcare is to engage um, our communities, our individuals, families, and communities in, in what is increasingly being known as population health. So we are engaging in this movement actually right now, along with our partners at UCIMC, the, the University of California Irvine Medical Center, to help to train the future leaders in the community so that we can deliver innovative models of care which will improve population health outcomes. And uh, we also hope that because there is an extreme shortage of nurse researchers and nurse educators, that, of course, is going to be supported by our increasing enrollment in both our the Doctor of Nursing Practice, or what's called the DNP, as well as the PhD. And as you were talking about these degrees, then later on will be the new Master in Psych Nursing degree. Can you tell us a little bit about what that can offer as well? 
So one of our future programs that we'd like to um, think about is psych mental health. There's a tremendous need in the community for more outpatient mental health support and services. So that is a, you know, a dream of ours for the future uh, to focus on psych mental health as well as in enhancing, as I've mentioned, our outreach into the community yes. using very innovative models of care. For example, we know that our patients who are seen in the emergency rooms are not unlikely to come back, you know, within a few days to weeks. And there's a lot that nursing could do to transform that whole uh, recycling of patients coming in and out. We, we want to be able to keep patients safe in the communities, and we are going to be putting a heavy focus on this outpatient community health training for our future nurses. But psych mental health, as you mentioned, is a critical addition to what we, we're planning to do. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Adi Nemethi, founding dean of the brand new School of Nursing. That's the UC Irvine's Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing, and she's a professor of nursing science. You're listening to Ask a Leader on 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org, all over the social media websites on Twitter and Facebook and you know, all over the places. So, And we're talking about the many credentials that will be a added to the ones already in place from the, the existing nursing program at this new school of nursing and how they will cover this community engagement, which was a huge part of what we were talking about with a progressive, rich and progressive alliance in the, the previous section of this program today with Steve Early. So it's a, it's a lovely pitch all the way around, folks, how community engagement gets a whole lot done. And it gets it done for keeps, I guess I should reinforce. Well, so tell us about how, in the interest of improving care, providing preventative care and lowering health care costs, the initiatives that already were in place, and tell us about the MOMS program and the Women's Health Initiative, how that secures public health for all ages and all cohorts with, when the prenatal sort of phase of nursing and intervention is, is considered. Yes, women's health, as you're intimating, is a very important part of our uh, new school. Uh, we actually have a Center for the Advancement of Women's Health that's part of our school, and that's an area that we want to expand and grow. We want to bring leadership into that program. And the community engagement aspect, which you're referring to, our faculty, our stellar faculty that are here, have had years of engagement in the community. One very important community engagement is the MOMS program, which has a very strong focus on improving the health of pregnant and parenting mothers. And the whole focus is if we could improve the health of the of the child to be, yes. that that child will grow into a very healthy and strong adult, which is important for for our uh, for uh, not only nationally but globally. And also, the woman is a very strong component of the family. And if we could focus on the woman and strengthen the areas that um, there might be challenges to in, in uh, for example, in accessing health care or taking medications, uh, per, you know, even accessing medications, then that's going to help the family. And one of our very strong, we have many faculty that are very into this movement, but I want to highlight Allison yes. Holman, who was our interim dean yes. for um, several years, and she is very passionate as are other faculty uh, with us, Julie Russo and uh, Susan Tiso and Susie Phillips, to make sure that our students are engaged in these community partnerships. So we're all very um, excited about this as, as one example. And that, this, as I was mentioning in your introduction, we were going to get to this point. That, but And this is something in rural India that the model is you help the woman, you, there's a multiplier effect throughout all of the sectors that she's in touch with, and that has every bit of application in good old Orange County. 
Oh, that's absolutely true. Of course, our work in India is very unique because um, of the extreme poverty yes. uh, of women. And these these uh, women have young children, and they're living with uh, actually with with AIDS, the progression from HIV to AIDS. And what is very special is the model that we think has a lot of strength here in Orange County as well. And that is that nurses, as you mentioned early on, they are one of the most respected professions that are uh, here with us. You know, they are extremely knowledgeable, uh, respected, compassionate, etc. But there's a lot of um, areas that uh, that we notice in India, for example, the women are not able to to uh, listen or adhere to the guidelines of the nurses because there are multiple challenges along the way. And the model that we've engaged there that's been tremendously successful is to engage community partners in our, this is a research study we're doing, in our research study to make a difference to improve the outcomes of these women. There is a lot of challenges in Orange County. There are a lot of mothers, for example, who have these somewhat similar challenges. And if we can think about new and creative models of care that engage community partners, this, I believe, is going to be a very important uh, contribution, as well as engaging technology, distance, you know, uh, guidance and care could be a very strong uh, component to what we do as well. Well, you know, the, uh, the elephant or the couple of elephants in the middle of the room <laughs> is the Affordable Care Act, and the uncertainty is the, the big bathrobe. <laughs> over the elephant. Could did you tell us about what a brand new school of nursing has to contend with with this kind of uncertainty looming? Well, you know, it's hard to really know what the future will bring us, but I think that the more that we prepare leaders to be in the community and to also engage in the acute care settings, the better off we will be. But particularly the community is of, of importance to all of us, including our medical center partners, because that's where prevention and allowing health well, and wellness to really prosper in the community setting. One of our brand new programs that we're starting this summer is the Master's Entry Professional Nurse. And this, um, the focus of these students who are not nurses, they have a bachelor's degree in another discipline, they will be coming into our program and within two years graduating um, as registered nurses who have a very strong experience in the community um, will be one of our star programs which will, I think, help offset any future, uh, whatever the future holds in terms of the Affordable Care Act. So we're very excited about this program, particularly because a lot of young people who have bachelor degrees and really hadn't thought about nursing before or really want to make a difference in this world in terms of engaging patients in the community and improving health and wellness and, and as you said, decreasing costs and improving the patient experience. Our uh, MEPIN, the Master's Entry Professional Nurse graduates will make a strong stand in that respect. Well, it looks like the community might be a sort of a, a, a very strategic way to, to navigate the uncertainty coming on the horizon. So when we, we talk about admissions, I'd like to know sort of, a, let's say you, you get any kind of demographic, any kind of background. What, what are you looking for in the admissions process for these advanced degrees, if I can sort of broadside you a bit with that global question? Well, our admission process um, is really, what should I say, it, we welcome um, individuals from regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, choice, etc. We want to have a, a diverse group because that's the way that we will advance the mission of our campus as a public research university. So our commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion is very strong and very much guided and monitored by our Office of Inclusive Excellence. So, 
So we are very committed to ensuring that we have a a pool of students who are across the board and who are admitted regardless of, as I said, gender, age, religion, et cetera. So that's one of our very strong commitments to our, our enrollment of students. Well, when Dean Chemerinsky strategically started growing the UCI Law School, he funded a tremendous amount of the, the tuition and the fees for the, I believe it was the very first three cohorts at the law school. Will any of the gross $40 million donation, will any of that help underwrite so you get the best and the brightest of, of the continuing education nursing students? The, the $40 million from Sue and Bill Gross is going to be targeted to our building. It's so brick that's and mortar. the focus for that. Okay. But we have a lot of resources on the campus. We have resources within our school. For example, the Ph.D. program is supported 100% by funds and resources that we have between the campus and the oh. School of Nursing. And we have lots of scholarship funding for our uh, baccalaureate students as well as for our future master's entry professional nursing students. So we have planned ahead for providing scholarship and support for students who may not have the resources to come. But regardless, we want them to be part of our school. We want to, of course, include um, to hire diverse faculty. So we are very uh, into diversity and inclusion and equity. I've I've really had a strong backing of this at UCLA, and this is clearly part of the UCI campus as well. Well, in closing, I I would like for you to, if you could give me a a link either now or uh, uh, as we get off the show, but uh, where people can go to where this listing of of scholarships are. I could put that link on the podcast summary. Um, Claudia, I will send that to you. Okay. I don't have it um, okay, we'll right have off that the bat, but I will make sure that you receive that. Because that's an important resource that we can avail. Well, Definitely. Dr. Nimethy, thank you so much for your time today. It's so good to have you on and talking about this tremendous school that we're going to watch grow under our very noses. Good luck to you. Thank you very much, Claudia. My guest was Dr. Adi Nimethy, and she's a founding dean of UCI School of Nursing and Professor of Nursing Science. Well, that was so good. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from Teresa McQueen. She's the founding attorney and a consultant for Sapphire Legal, which specializes in preventing workplace harassment of all kinds. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you.